in Benjaminian words, a constellation uh, um, of Marano thinkers who all use Jewish motifs without actually naming it as such. And my, uh, my inspiration actually came from, uh, I've, I always thought that we need something like a special methodology to approach these thinkers in order to make any sense of what they're saying, you know, Adorno, Benjamin, Derrida, uh, their emphasis on the messianism, a different kind of messianism than a Christian one. Uh, and uh, the inspiration came from uh, three sources. Um, one was Derrida. Derrida, who for the last at least decade of his life insisted on some mysterious secret by saying, uh, you won't really understand what I'm talking about unless you understand my secret. It was almost like telling the secret de pollutionnaire, like you, you know, the secret is just right there, right? Unearth it, uncover it, and you'll understand everything about me. The yes. And he called himself in his autobiography uh, uh, a Marano of French Catholic culture. It never really developed much as uh, uh, auto-identification, but I thought that this is definitely a kind of a clue he's giving us to his secret. Um, and then I read interview with Max Horkheimer in the 60s about the Frankfurt School. This was the time when Max Horkheimer already returned to Judaism. He was one of the founder of the Frankfurt Institute of uh, Social Research. Uh, and he was asked by the interviewer just to give a very short one sentence definition of what Frankfurt School was all about. All this intervention of critical theory. Uh, Adorno, uh, Hokheimer himself, uh, the connections with Walter Benjamin, what were they doing? And Hokheimer answered, Judaism under cover. He just gave it this very <laughs> simple description. Welcome back to Vendée Radio. It is September the 8th in the year of our Lord 2023. Today is the Solemnity of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I am joined once again, it's a great pleasure to be joined again by Mr. Will Tucker, the independent researcher and scholar and the co-host of the Dr. Deep State channel. Mr. Tucker, happy feast and welcome back to Vendée Radio. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I've had a few messages from some of our viewers, and 
Despite the topic of our last podcast on disengagement from regime systems, I haven't, in fact, disengaged from YouTube. Uh, it's been a busy time, but I will be releasing a greater frequency of broadcasts at this time. So it's a great privilege to have you back, Mr. Tucker, for a, a broadcast that I think kind of can be placed within a series on the mystery of iniquity or the secrets of the synagogue, penetrating or trying to clarify the unclarifiable, uh, at least to give an outline, an adumbration of some of those secrets, one of which Jacques Derrida alluded to there. Now, you've uncovered, I think, an intellectual genealogy of ontological warfare in our time this grand revolutionary assault on Christian metaphysics. And if you'll permit me, Mr. Tucker, I will begin by reading a quotation, an extended quotation from Friedrich Romig, who is an Austrian academic, and this is within the Festschrift for Dr. Robert D. Hickson, who actually died recently, may he rest in peace. And this is what Friedrich Romig wrote in his essay on the Jewish roots of modernity. Quote, there was a book published by the author Sergio Quinzio, who was essentially unknown in Austria, but famous and cherished in Italy. Its original title is Radici Ebreci del Moderno, The Hebraic Roots of Modernity one that must seem strange to enlightened readers. The very first paragraph of the first chapter already has a title that succinctly summarizes the entire historical process of more than 2000 years, the Judaization of the world. Quinzio writes in the first lines of his text, quote, if we consider the present reality, one cannot consider the concept of the Judaization of the world to be an exaggeration. He continues, even though the influence of this small race has always been profound throughout the entire history of the Occident, its thinkers and writers never had as much influence previously as they have had in the century in which its complete annihilation was planned. What he means by Judaization can be read soon afterwards. The Judaization of the world, which culminates in our century, consists in the implementation of Jewish categories. Categories are for him the key concepts or principles of all thought and action. According to Quinzio, Jewish thought is, in contradistinction to, for example, the Platonic approach, quote, dynamic, multifaceted, not reducible to one system. It knows no magisterium, no dogmas, no eternal truths that exist independently of time and circumstances. In the vast rabbinic literature, there can be found for nearly every statement a counterstatement. Contradiction becomes the foundation of modern dialectical thinking, which removes the logical principles of identity, consistency, and the excluded middle. Subjectivism, relativism, and tolerance thereby gain importance. Even the quote, Jewish sacred is not eternal. It is to say, movable and flowing, and is essentially materialistic. The materialistic, earthly, physical takes prominence, for example, in the laws of food preparation and hygiene. The sacred is made profane, the profane is made sacred. 
the barrier that separates the sacred from the profane in other religions is torn down. It disappears. This disappearance dissolves the hierarchical order of society. Equality becomes a commandment. Differences in social background, family origin, gender and race and religious belief lose their significance. Discrimination is forbidden. As a consequence of its inconsistency, Jewish thought is profoundly restless. That is why for a long time the Jewish mode of being has been wandering, the meandering of the nomads, compelled by an irresistible inclination to tear down barriers, to break established norms of conduct, to dissolve firm convictions and boundaries. The figure of the modern intellectual with his critical engagement towards society is a Jewish creation. In the modern era, critical thinking and critical rationalism claim to be exclusive methods. Quote, the critical zeal that is still inherent in the Jewish intellectual has its roots in his people's ancient opposition to idolatry. End quote. The fundamental revolution of the transition from antiquity to modernity, which still influences, influences us, is the Jewish revolution which brought us from cosmic sacredness to the profanity of history. The Judaization of the world shows itself most clearly at the present time, which has brought forth as a consequence of modernity, the radical lack of coherence, insecurity and disunity. Only after the, quote, violent annihilation of the present age, end quote, can there be hope for the coming age of the complete reign of God and of peace. Anyone who considers this thesis of the Judaization of the world as the byword and characterization of the historical process, will quickly remember a multitude of quotations from famous commentators, philosophers, politicians, and church leaders that confirm this thesis. One might recall Karl Marx, first of all. In On the Jewish Question, he writes, the Jews have emancipated themselves insofar as the Christians have become Jews, end quote. The Jewish God, Mammon, is now also the God of the Christians. The Jew has acquired monetary power. Through the Jews, the love of money has gained control over the world and the practical money-loving spirit of the Jews became the spirit of the Christian people. According to Marx, the Jew with his monetary power determines the fate of the entire German empire and of Europe. A book by Yuri Schleskine, professor of Russian history at the University of California, Berkeley, The Jewish Century, has been discussed widely. With extensive documentation, he defends the thesis that the 20th century was the Jewish century and was a preparation for the emerging Jewish age. America is for him the epitome of modernity, a state without a common national identity, consisting of many minorities, thus without aliens or discrimination against them. The dismantling of borders, the open society, democratization, globalization, unification, the free flow of capital goods and services are expressions of the Jewish spirit of modernity and of the increasingly dominant mercurial thinking. Modernization is nothing other than everyone becoming Jewish. So, Mr. Tucker, does that quotation resonate with some of your own research and writing on the imposition of Jewish categories of thought as a very central aspect of modernity? It certainly does. And in fact, I, I don't know what else I could have. I have to add to that. Um, now that was that was very uh, profound, um, and yes, the research I've been doing into the origins of modernity has led me um, to similar conclusions. And to back up to the, the the video you first presented, that modernity or modernitas via moderna 
is a crypto theology of Jewish messianism, following the via negativa, uh, or the Jewish negative, as Harold Bloom has called it. So double agents, dual citizens, with dual allegiances is a typology of Jewish messi of the Jewish messianic spirit uh, that goes back before uh, Weimar to Shabbatai Zevi, who we talked about before, the false messiah, antinomian messiah of the 17th century. Uh, Jacob Frank, his protege, uh, Spinoza, and uh, the Muranos before that. Uh, Moses Cordovero said that the Messiah will be a Murano like me. The Joachim de Fiore, uh, the her heretical millenarian who was accused by a Cistercian abbot uh, during his time of being a false Jewish convert. And then back to the, the Gnostic heretics of the early centuries of the church, like uh, Marcion, Arius, Valentinius, who are all also accused of being Jewish false converts. And um, this is a thesis that um, I hope to deconstruct that Gnosticism was something that was introduced by um, the reinscription of paganism, uh, the ancient Greek paganism into early Christianity that then seeded into Judaism in the Middle Ages that produced Kabbalah. Um, one of the most preeminent uh, scholars of Jewish mysticism today, uh, Moshe Adel, says that in his New Perspectives uh, in Kabbalah, that Gnostic, the seeds of Gnosticism date back before the time of Christ um, into the first centuries BC and before to the Babylonian exile and even to Egypt, and that they were always lurking and harbored within the Jewish um, uh, tradition, the Jewish mystical tradition. This via negativa, uh, this coincidence, coincidentia oppositorum that we'll get to momentarily. So, um, yeah, our thesis here um, that the attack on the church, modernism, that the popes of the 18th and 19th century um, identified uh, is best understood against the backdrop of the medieval synthesis, which combined the ancient philosophy of Greece and Rome with Christian theology. Uh, modernitas, the project of modernism, seeks the upheaval of a Christian Neoplatonic concept of being and the church, church teachings that sustain it, specifically the Augustinian concept of the church as the millennial messianic kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven with its sacral authority over the temporal order, as well as Thomistic ontology centered on the analogy of being, also called uh, the, the analogia entis, which I hope to be able to um, somewhat outline. It's a very com complicated concept. So anything you want to add there? I think that's very helpful at elaborating what we've discussed previously as well. Looking forward to this. Just to say that people's perception of Jewish influence often focuses too exclusively on networks of power and coordination. Not to say that those aren't important, of course, but perhaps more important are habits of thought, our categories, our languages are the the management of economy of symbols particularly sacred symbols that itself changes our way of thinking and and estranges us distances us from the christian edifice as you say perfected in the in the medieval synthesis our audience will be familiar with the the genealogy of of cultural marxism and its roots in weimar germany uh, and i know you're going to to elaborate on that so over to you Yes. Um, so, yes, it's a secularization 
uh, within modernity is actually a part of this crypto theology, this messianic enterprise. Um, and I hope to be able to speak to that um, by uh, first backing up a little bit and talking about this difference between being and non-being and how that sets up this enmity between the Jewish negative and the analogiantis of, uh, of St. Thomas Aquinas. And I hope that what I'm going to say about the analogy of being will kind of clarify what I was trying to speak about with the economy of images and signs um, in our previous discussion about how, you know, within uh, the Jewish milieu, we have this prohibition on the signification of, of the divine and the transcendent and how this, um, this doctrine of, of St. Thomas allows for the representation of, um, of God, but only in a kind of um, participatory analogical way, not one that's fully the same, but not one that's completely separate. So uh, the concept of being and non-being um, was a problem in ancient Greece, particularly with the, the, the uh, philosopher Parmenides, uh, which being is necessarily described as one unique, unborn and indestructive and immovable. Uh, Parmenides resolves the problem of being with a tautology or a circular argument. There's only there's only the being, but non-being does not exist. We can say being is, but we cannot say being is not, uh, or non-being is not because the verb is already predicates being. So uh, if we say being is, uh, or non-being is a vacuum, for instance, we're already presupposing space and time. So that cannot be non-being. Um, so non-being is something that escapes rational constructs and our ability, ability to know it. And so this gets conflated with the transcendent, as we'll come to see later on within uh, the, the, the Jewish idiom. Um, uh, already to describe non-being is to give it attributes, which is in contradiction. Um, so the question from a very early stage for Western metaphysics is what is being and how is it ordered over and against non-being? The ground of being is uh, a source by which all descendant being issues, therefore being is hierarchical. So um, once the Greek concept of being becomes merged with uh, Christianity, which we can see a little glimpse of in, in the uh, book of Acts, where and, and Dr. Haugen, my um, collaborator on Dr. Deep State, um, deals with this very closely in his upcoming book, um, In Pursuit of the Metaverse, um, where Paul speaks to, to um, the people of Athens at Areopagus in front of the shrine to the unknown God in which he um, uh, describes that, you know, through revelation, um, God has come to the Gentiles. And this concept of the unknowable transcendent has become knowable through the incarnation of Christ. Um, so uh, to make a long story short, the a priori being that always already is, and by which all subsequent being is predicated, is converged in the medieval synthesis with the transcendent God of the Bible. As he proclaims in Genesis 3.14, the I am that I am, the father and creator who creates the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. As Acts 17.28 says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Being is being in him in participation in his being. So we receive our being through God, even though he created the world out of nothing. And this idea of creation ex nihilo is very important as well for this kind of Gnostic uh, Jewish messianic uh, concept that we'll get to with um, Isaac Luria's Zimzum that um, the primordial being is actually 
nothingness, um, the non-being, and that God becomes to be conflated, conflated with this pleroma of non-being out of which the, the, the world that we know is issued. So um, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, every effect is proportional to its cause. Therefore, everything that exists flows out of God's transcendent being. So this, um, you know, also the, the, the doctrine of exodus reditus, that everything exits from and is returned to God through this ana uh, analogy. So um, we have this idea within the medieval synthesis of creatio continua. So creation out of nothing and creation maintained continuously through God's ever-present being that we participate in. Um, and so this come, uh, arrives at this question for St. Thomas Aquinas um, that between, you know, Duns Scotus and Maimonides or other contemporary, Maimonides, Maimonides obviously being a Jewish uh, rabbinical thinker, um, contemporary to St. Thomas, about um, how is this being related to our position in the world? How do we engage with the transcendent? So uh, one theory was the univocity of being, which was the theory of Don Scotus. And this is a grammatical problem as well as a logical problem as well as a theological problem. So it's, it's if we say, um, for instance, um, you know, uh, uh, Maimonides is good, and we say St. Thomas is good. We're using the word good in the same sense. And the word is in that sentence means in exactly the same way. But if we say, um, you know, St. Thomas is healthy, St. Thomas's food is healthy, St. Thomas, um, uh, St. Thomas's exercise regimen is healthy. The way is relates to those objects is, is different in each situation because they relate through um, relation to the cause which is St. Thomas in that situation. So Maimonides' theory was that we have an equivocity of being in relation to God. God is so transcendent and so outside of our world that he is unknowable, unrelatable, and anything that we could possibly say about God is always going to come, it's always going to be an error. It's always going to be false. So the only way that we can describe God is through negation through via negativa, through apophatic theology. So uh, if we say God is good, no, he's not good. He's more than good. If we say God is um, uh, uh, all powerful, no, he's even more than what we can say is powerful. And so in Duns Scotus' system, it's, well, God is good in the same way that we are good and everything is kind of univocally held together. So St. Thomas's system is one based upon um, stages where God is the first cause and we participate in being through participating in God. And then that comes to the problem of evil, theodicy as it's called, where how does, um, and this is a theological problem, an, an unstable triad it's called, where if we have an all-powerful God and an omnibenevolent God, how does evil come into the world? How can evil be allowed to exist by a God that's all powerful and controls everything and is all good? So, um, you know, we talked a little bit in my first presentation with you from the book of Job and these various um, sort of uh, uh, speculations on the nature of evil. And this, this uh, genre is called theodicy and the, the mystery of, the need of evil, how God allows evil to exist. So within the scholastics from, you know, St. Thomas all the way back to St. Augustine, the uh, orthodox opinion on the nature of evil is that it's a privation. It's called the privatio boni, which means the privation of goodness. Evil is not a thing in and of itself. It's a non-being. So 
St. Thomas has a category for non-being in his four modes of being. First, the highest level of being is substance, and then there's accidents, and then there's potentials, which also are like becomings, and then the last stage is non-being. And non-being can only exist in relation to being like as a privation, as an absence of something. So like, um, you know, uh, blindness is a non-being because it's the absence of sight, but it still has some being in the world because it relates, it participates in the concept of sight, in the substance of sight. Likewise, um, evil uh, doesn't exist in and of itself. It only exists in relation to the good. So I wanted to provide just a little bit of background like that because I feel like it's important to um, frame how this enmity, this um, this conflict uh, appears between in, in the Middle Ages um, after St. Thomas uh, uh, with the emerging uh, Protestant revolution, uh, Luther's theology, and this idea of the unknown or hidden God stemming from Maimonidean concepts of the equivocity of being, the God's radical transcendence that's so totally other and outside of our being that we don't participate in, in him at all. And therefore, creation, the world that we inhabit, is its own entity in and of itself, fully autonomous and um, free, uh, 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 free of the sovereignty of God, because God has been, become totally retracted. And this, you know, the, the influence of Maimonides was very heavy on uh, the Protestant um, theologians, like Luther's concept of the Deus abscondita, the, um, the hidden God, the unknown God. Um, and so the church itself, which is, has this analogous relationship with the kingdom of heaven, you know, uh, when our Lord describes the kingdom of God, he describes it in parables, which have this kind of analogous relationship. He uses image, imagery and symbolism as a way to relate to us what the transcendent looks like because we can't comprehend it. Um, so, uh, this flies in the face of, you know, the Jewish understanding of the, of the prohibition of the second commandment that you should make no images of God. So the idea that the church itself is the an analogy of the kingdom of heaven on earth, and that's part of what, you know, St. Saint, Saint Augustine resolved in his Civitas Dei uh, with the, the problem of the millennium, um, this millenarian expectation of a, of a, a messianic age to come. He said, no, now it's, it's here. It's already arrived in the church, and the church is the... Um, is the fulfillment of the kingdom of Christ on earth. And so the, the medieval, um, during medieval times, what becomes seeded into uh, the, the orbit of, of Christian thought are these Jewish principles of um, negativity and equivocity of being, that God cannot be known, God cannot be represented. And the church, therefore, and that this was Luther's charge, that the Pope is the Antichrist in trying to be the vicar of of Christ because God is so unknowable and his kingdom is so outside of our fallen reality that to try to, to um, assign an image to him is already a, um, a kind of heresy. And likewise with the iconoclasts and the nominalists, uh, there's this rejection of our ability to represent the transcendent and to participate in it. Um, is that, is that <laughs> too dense uh, there, there, or am I, should I keep going? No, I think I think that's really important sort okay. of groundwork there to to express that the Christian theophany was expressed through these categories, providential categories of Hellenistic thought. What you're saying there about the Deus Abscondita reminds me of what you mentioned in one of your previous appearances on Monday Radio with regard to the Simpson, 
this sort of retraction of God. And I'm, I'm sure you're going to make that connection. Sure, absolutely. And I think it's important to understand that messianism, the redemption of the world, is set up by the creation of the world and the problem, the fall, or how do we conceive of from these two different perspectives, from the Orthodox Christian perspective and from the, the Jewish perspective? How do we imagine creation and how do we imagine um the problem, the problems that we face every day. Why do we are we flung to use Heidegger's term, the flungness of being? How how why are we flung into this valley of tears uh, that we didn't choose to be, you know, born into? And this is kind of the Gnostic tension that has to be worked out. Um, and uh, you know, that's kind of what the, the theodicy, the problem of evil, is asking: is like, why do we suffer? Why do we experience evil? Why is there? anything other than God. If God is all good and all powerful, why do we experience anything other than God? So um, it's important to note that Judaism does not have a concept of original sin. And this is not consistent throughout the entire history. It's alluded to um, throughout the Old Testament, the notion of, but it was something that was shed in the first centuries when they realized that the problem of original sin was resolved with the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, and it was just another proof of why um uh, you know, Christ was the, the Messiah. So there became these um, these alternate uh, interpretations of why evil exists. And why. And so today, the uh, Jews do not believe that they have, um, they are marked with the sin of Adam, the original sin of Adam. So um, then how does the fall take place? Why are we in this stage of exile? Why are we not still in the Garden of Eden? So for, for our perspective, because of Adam and Eve's original sin, we have to deal with this problem. So God created the world and he saw that it was good. So creation is good, but there is this problem of evil that's sown into it by, by the enemy. And because Adam and Eve consented to something that was forbidden by God, they turned their, you know, they didn't return. They didn't perform the ready to back to God. Instead, they turned toward non-being. Then it introduced this, this, um, this cat catastrophe into uh, creation. So the, the concept of Zimzum is something that appears in the 16th century in the writing of Isaac Luria. Um, and it is a, you know, a Kabbalistic notion of the, the cosmogony, the, the creation story. How does being come into existence? And so um, it's a four-stage process um, in which the God, the creator, the Ein Sof, um, that we've I've alluded to in our previous conversations, this undifferentiated, unknowable, radically transcendent God who's totally other than us, of uh, which all oppositions are are, um, are collapsed, um, retracts himself. So he's the fullness. It's the pleroma of not non being. Everything is unified into God, and so he retracts himself to including evil. I'm sorry, including evil. Yes, then um, this idea the Ein Sof is beyond good and evil, beyond good and evil, beyond all oppositions, beyond light and dark, beyond um, uh, up uh, heaven and and or uh, above and below, beyond um, all all opposites, um, and that's uh, the coincidenti oppositorum is um, a, a concept that we've spoke about previously, and I think is very critical for understanding this um, this Jewish kabbalistic ontology. Um, and how it exists in contradistinction to the analogy of being the the the, the Thomistic ontology. Um, so after the reason that Einsoff um, implodes himself 
is to clear a space for something other than himself because he is is everything. Um, and so in that implosion, it creates uh, the the pleroma, you know, the pleroma of non-being creates a, a space for something other than itself. So the ground of being is actually the non-being of, of Einsoff. Transcendence is, like I said before, conflated to the um, the undifferentiated um, nothingness. And this is what um, Sholem uh, quotes of Luria. He says, um, in the beginning, God created nothingness. So after this implosion, um, there is a, a ray of emanation. And this is something I want to back up to um, and say with we have a lot of, you know, it's, there's a lot of confusion about Gnosticism and about Neoplatonism and about Hermeticism. And everyone is, uh, you know, in the Catholic truth or world is trying to find that magic bullet of where does the heresy come in and what's the um, the central thesis of Gnosticism. So you'll hear a lot of times people say, oh, anytime you're talking about emanationism, you're talking about heretical Gnostic ideas. And that's not true because the analogy of being is actually based upon a Neoplatonic structure of emanations. So we can't use that um, as, you know, the catch-all for, for, for heresy. But within, you know, as opposed to creatio continua, in which God is constantly emanating his being into the world in which we participate in, this is a once-for-all-time emanation in which the Einsoff emits a single ray of light into the nothingness. And bang. then, I'm sorry, what? A big bang. Yeah, like a big bang, exactly. And so because this um, light is tinged with the nothing, and this, this all seems very esoteric, and um, nonsensical, and it is, you know, I mean, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you how the story goes. So um, I'm going to try to explain it the best that I can. So the light is tinged with the nothingness of Einsoff. Therefore, nothing in this cleared expanse is um, capable of receiving it. So the vessels that are prepared for it, how the vessels got into the nothingness, it's not explained. Um, that uh, They are shattered because the power of the nothingness of the light is so... Um, is, is so tinged with nothingness that the, sh uh, the vessels that were meant to contain it are shattered. Um, and so this is called the Shifrat HaKalim. And I think that this, um, and there's many allusions to this, um, is a way of, of um, separating itself from the Platonic theory of the forms. So these vessels are supposed to be the, the forms, the, the universal eternal categories in which we understand the transcendent and God gives us, you know, the archetype, the, the platonic form for what a man is and what a chair is and what a tree is. And we receive our being through participation in those transcendent forms. So this is a way of saying, of negating those, those, those platonic forms from the get-go. And so what ends up happening is the world issues out of this great catastrophe of the shattering of the vessels and the emanated light becomes the sparks that become muddied and uh, intermixed into this kind of chaos of the, sh the, the shattered shards of the vessels and the sparks of the divine Einsoff. And so then what ends up being the messianic story in this case is it is the job of humanity to extract out of this um, this messy, botched, false spectacle of being, um, this unintentional creation, um, to extract out of it the spark of the divine and reconfigure the divine face um, of of the Einsoff, of the infinites. And so, anyway, it's all very um, 
very weird and nonsensical, but that's that's the creation story. So rather than creation is good and we have this parasitic um, uh, problem of evil that we have to cope with until the end of time, um, creation is a botched job. Creation is a false spectacle. Creation is something that has to be overcome through negativity, through banging the spark of the divine against the the, the shell of um, of the uh, of the of the vessel together over and over again until the the spark comes out and we can um, sort of uh, stitch these things together, reconstellate them as Walter Benjamin calls it into um, into the image of God. So the image of God appears in the imminence, appears in the world. It's not something that we're waiting for God to return to us at the end of the time. It's our messianic, our meaning the, the, the Jewish messianic obligation to um, bring this, uh, this light into being through our own Gnostic uh, work of tikkun olam, basically. Solveit coagula. Right. Translated into Masonic idiom. It's the right. same idiom. Right. So within that understanding of that cosmology, you said they see humanity as redeeming the world, but it's it's a narrower category than that. They see the Jewish people as redeeming the world, which, of course, is a half truth. Salvation is from the Jews, but they don't mean it like Christians understand that to mean. Instead, it is the Tikkun Olam, as you say, it is the the reconstitution of those divine sparks man as god so as i mentioned before i think people are quite familiar with the origins of the frankfurt school and cultural marxism but you have been reading a number of other associated thinkers particularly theologians jewish theologians who whose work i think repays study for understanding many of the dynamics that we see in the world today, particularly this idea of messianic times. So perhaps we can look into discussing that. Sure. Yes. Um, so this, unless you'd like to go somewhere else. No, no, no. Um, this, this hop right into it. Um, the legacy of Lurianic Kabbalah uh, is, and I, I would recommend anyone who wants to know more about um these, these secrets of empire, the secrets of the m modern uh, uh, messianic project, to look at this uh, person um, that you showed the video of early on, Ag Agatha Balik Robeson. And she has many of free downloadable PDFs online um, and many videos on YouTube in which she shows that um, uh, the, the influence of Lurianic Kabbalah is seeded into Christianity um, in uh, the Middle Ages. Um, well, first, the Zohar appears uh, by a translation by Ramon Lull, um, the kind of Renaissance polymath. And um, then afterwards, after uh, 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 a writer named Kristen Rosenroth um, gets a hold of uh, the Lurianic uh, writings, he introduces the Kabbalah Denudata, which uh, is translated. And then um, there's this effort at that, in, at that time during the Renaissance and thereafter to um, uh, read into the uh, Kabbalistic writings a, a kind of Christological Trinitarian um, idea, so that it it can become as a, a used as a, a way of um, evangelizing to the Jews. At least that's the exoteric justification for it. Um, so you have what appears it's called the Christian Kabbalah, 
And then this becomes very influential for the German pietists and this kind of underground stream of esotericists, alchemists like uh, Edding, Edinger and Jacob Burma and um, uh, the people, uh, the thinkers who became very influential for what became German idealism and, you know, Hegel, Hegel's idea of spirit. So this is kind of the background of German thought that's leading up to um, the time in between um, the wars uh, after World War One in Weimar Germany. So it's it's thought of um, primarily coming from um, a Protestant stream of thought. Um, there's I think you've mentioned on this channel before a, a Protestant theologian named uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who is uh, of course sort of synonymous with this liberal progressive um, uh, theology. And so what appears in the Weimar period after the war is a kind of post-liberal theology of crisis, as it's called, by two particular um, Protestant theologians, Adolf von Harnack and uh, Karl Barth. And particularly von Harnack's book, Marcion, uh, The Gospel of the Alien God, which is this kind of expose of the theology of Marcionism. Um, and this reintroduction of the concept of Gnosticism as a way of solving the problem of how did this modern idea of, in, of endless progress toward the uh, fraternity of man and the real, realization of the Hegelian concept of spirit, um, how did that turn that turn into this mass catastrophe of World War I? And um, so Marcionism, uh, Marcion was a, a, a second or third century uh, Gnostic heretic who introduced the, um, the theory that the Old Testament God, the God of um, the Israelites, is a completely separate religion from, from the New Testament, and that the God of the New Testament, Christ, is in no way related, and actually he's, he's in contradiction to um, the, the God of creation, the God of the Old Testament. And this is a recurrent thing that you'll um, see within Gnostic theories, is that there's this kind of duality within the Godhead, that there's this um, evil God of creation, this evil controller, sovereign God of the world versus the God of the Redeemer, the God of Exodus, the God who takes us out of the bondage of the world. Um, and so um, this, this uh, and let me, maybe I'll uh, read a little section here from Von Harnack to give you a little taste of um, um, of what he was thinking. So the Christian Gnostics took the concept unknown seriously. He's talking about the unknown God here. Their God, although the father of Jesus Christ, was actually the unknown one. The connection of this God with the world has been completely dissolved. They were increasingly unable to relate the pure, good, and exalted God whom they found within their bosoms to the external world, which was so bad. Finally, the link is completely broken. The unknown God is not creator of the world. Precisely for this reason, he is the unknown one. The attributes of God stemming from his inwardness as spiritual, holy, and good exalted him so high above the world that he could no longer be thought of as its creator and governor. In the same process, however, the world came to be utterly devoid of value. Since not only all value, but all tr true being also is sought to be in the unknown one. The world became a prison, a hell, something without meaning, an idle fantasy, indeed a nothing. All these judgments are basically identical. The world had lost its right to be, so that the palpable fact of its existence evoked early conceivable, 
uh, every conceivable form of hostile judgment and condemnation. The Gnostics, however, still maintained an important reservation in this connection to man, which possesses in his spirit a spark of the very being and life of the unknown God. The saving act of the unknown God who had become manifest can only appear as the fulfillment of a binding obligation, an act that only gives assistance to what is really the self-redemption of the spirit that is, after all, divine, to become secret day, become like God's. So um, this idea, uh, it, it, during the Weimar period, you know, Weimar Germany is synonymous with um, uh, uh, social excess, um, sexual degeneracy, um, you know, financial problems, inflation, and the lead up to like what became, you know, the Third Reich. And um, what, but what you had was this kind of um, a melting pot of Protestant um, radical thinkers like Harnack and Bart, and then these, uh, and then these uh, Jewish uh, thinkers working within the Lurianic tradition who latched on very uh, quickly to this Gnostic thesis. Um, as a way of speaking of, you know, the, the catastrophe of World War I and a new way of thinking about God. Um, they saw it as an opportunity to seed within the Christian lexicon um, their, uh, their Lurianic messianism, the Tikkun Olam. And Adolf von Harnack's uh, Gospel of the Alien God was um, incredibly influential during this time period for German thinkers, theologians. And theology was very chic at this time period. Um, not like it is today. Uh, and um, what we also had emerging from other Christian thinkers during this time is the concept of political theology. So Carl Schmitt, who we've talked about a lot in our previous conversations, was very much in the mix during this Weimar period. Um, and the, the, his concept of all modern theories of the states are secularized uh, theological concepts. That's very much dealing with this kind of Gnostic theology of um, the unknown God that reappears within the eminence, that reappears in this kind of hidden form within um, the development of the world spirit. So Karl Barth is the next theologian I want to talk about. Barth, I'm sorry if I'm saying Barth, that's how it's spelled, um, and his uh, contribution of crisis theology. And so um, he realized after reading Adolf von Harnack, that's exactly the the way he was imagining um, uh, the, 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 the true theology. So like um, how Luther in his theology of the hidden, un, the hidden God, the unknown God, that God is so transcendent, he cannot be knowable. Um, likewise, Karl Barth, and insofar as it, he saw that the church was actually a, um, um, a false kingdom, uh, an imposter, and the Pope, Martin Luther, called the Antichrist. Likewise, Karl Barth, saw uh, St. Thomas Aquinas' theology of the Antis as the Antichrist. He literally called it that. Um, and the reason he did is because he saw this idea that God can be knowable or can be represented in this world uh, is always a form of idolatry and a form of, um, of, of um, um, contradiction and um, you know, heresy, I guess. Uh, so the crisis theology is also known as dialectical theology, that Karl Barth said. So um, a good way of thinking about this, you know, we talked a lot about dialectic last time, and it's a very confusing concept, and it's often misunderstood as thesis, antithesis, synthesis, which is a kind of um, 
you know, easier rule of thumb way of understanding um, what dialectic is. But actually dialectic is, the uh, in the Hegelian sense, is the uh, unity and struggle of opposites, as we've called it. Uh, and the way Karl Barth says, within any problem, you have the yes-no side of the equation and you have the no side of the equation. And you have to work these two out in tandem with one another through a kind of constant negativity. Um, and so Karl Barth saw... Um, the idea that the church could be the physical symbol of the kingdom of God as being always an aberration. And, and he said the church in its true form should be a crater. It should be um, this uh, residue of the impact of the, the, uh, of the radical event of Christ uh, coming into the world in the incarnation. And again, playing off this kind of dialectic between the God, the creator of the Old Testament and God, the redeemer of the new. Um, and he, in place of the uh, Analogia Entis, he he had his own um, theory called uh, the uh, Analogia Relationis, and, or also called the Analogia Temporalis. And it's based on a Hegelian concept of time, as time as the negation of being. And so rather than the ground of being, being um, this kind of creatio continua, God constantly emanating his being into the world that we participate in and through eternal forms, it's everything is always changing. It's always in this dynamic flow um, in which the dialectic is working itself out through negativities, through the through the struggle between this side of the equation and this side of the equation. That's how history forms. If there's no struggle, there's no forward development. So it's a, a kind of infralogic and it's an inter internal um uh, ontology that's self-relating rather than an ontology that relates to something transcendent and outside of itself. And so Karl Barth's theory of relationis is that inside the Trinity, um, God relates to, um, you know, the, the Son and the Holy Spirit in this kind of uh, triad that is self-relating. And likewise, since God is totally outside of our um reality. We are his other. So we are the no side of his equation. And likewise, anytime we encounter some other person in our life, um, there's this kind of relational dynamic that takes place. And through the, the, the again, like I said, this, this ontology of interrelation, the analogia relationis, um, that's how uh, we can imagine uh, God in the world. And it's very similar to this uh, sort of Lurianic concept of the sparks that have to be extracted through dialectical conflict. So that's kind of the Protestant side and the Christian, the, the pseudo-Christian side of, um, of uh, Weimar theology. And I want to say during this time, like I said, theology is very interesting um, to most of the philosophers and thinkers. Um, Likewise, for, for Jewish thinkers, Christianity is very interesting. And we're still dealing with a time in which the church is the triumphant, has this image of itself as the triumphant kingdom of God on earth. And we have the supersessionist belief of, you know, the church is the one covenantal people. And we have good popes and we have, um, you know, good liturgy and on and on and on. We still have the Augustinian um, idea of, of the millennial kingdom. And so these... Uh, uh, the, the thinkers I'm going to talk about, they're very much working as um, sort of Muranos, uh, as they're very interested in Sabbatai Zevi, Jacob Frank, and this way of kind of infiltrating, infiltrating and smuggling in with them 
the crypto theology of Lurianic Kabbalah and Jewish messianism as a way to kind of deconstruct Christianity from the inside out. So um, they, in one moment, they'll conflate you know, Catholic theology and Protestant theology, and the next moment they'll work them against each other. And so they're just kind of sowing conflict and looking for contradictions within the theological uh, assumptions of um, the medieval, uh, you know, scholastic tradition, and then wedging them against each, each other to try to cause this kind of collapse within Christianity. So like or, uh, now, nowadays, um, uh, Jewish thinkers are much less interested in Christianity, but at the time they were they were doing this very uh, kind of Gnostic reading of Saint Paul. Obviously, Saint Paul is very problematic for uh, for for Jews um, because of his writings in like you know Romans nine through eleven um, uh, and his statements like you know Jews are the enemies of all mankind and that they've been cut off from the the, the covenant. Um, their branches have been. Uh, removed and um, in their place, the, the Gentiles have been grafted in. On and on and on. He has this very um, clearly supersessionist. I mean, there's a there's a way in which I mean, all are not Jews who are Jews of the flesh. There are ways of reading Saint Paul. Like, have they been rejected? Have they been revoked? May it never be. It's you know, he's he's kind of um, speaking the uh, rabbinic language um, in a way, so to say that. Christians are to make the Jews jealous in the in the anticipation and hope that they will be grafted back in and that they will convert and accept the true Messiah. Um, so the but anyway, um, I'm sorry. What'd you say? Which they will at the end. So they will at the end. Um, so the Jewish Weimar thinkers uh, are Ernst Bloch, Hans Jonas, um, uh, Jakob Taubus, Walter Benjamin. Martin Buber, um, and uh, uh, several several others, but those are kind of the big names. And they're all kind of circling around these ideas of Gnosticism, of Lurianic Kabbalah, and Christianity, and trying to intermix all those concepts together. Um, so um, um, do, you, do you want to add anything here, or do you, do you want me to keep going? Well, just to say that from some of the reading that you sent me regarding Karl Barth and crisis theology, I think that was very illuminating. In particular, I think that you might say that the propulsion of messianic time comes from the state of crisis. And I, I sort of understand and read Karl Schmidt a bit more, but clearly this is within his, his field of thought as well. What we see at the moment, this acceleration of messianic time is clearly because of the multiplication of crises. And so Karl Barth translates that into the the theological field. Absolutely, yeah. And, um, an interesting research uh, 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 direction to go in is to look at the relationship between Karl Barth um, and Hans Urs von Balthasar. They are very close friends and colleagues, and um, and thinking of you know reading von Balthasar's uh, the- theology of. Uh, you know, analogia entis. Um, and also he's, he, Balthazar positions himself as like this preeminent historian of uh, Gnosticism. And uh, that's something that all these Weimar thinkers are doing is kind of revisiting Gnosticism as a way to try to pluck out of it or try to resolve the problem with, within it, because they see this window of opportunity in which the church, and this, this gets, you know, uh, 
revisited and uh, exaggerated even more after World War II, that the church is the restrainer, the church is the on, the church is a thing that's holding back catastrophe and the end of the world is something that's fading away. Um, the church didn't present, prevent, you know, the crisis of World War One, the mass catastrophes of that. And likewise, you know, since the Protestant Reformation, there's been this kind of steady um, uh, uh, internal uh, fighting within, you know, what's left of Christendom and in in, in of, um, of of Western civilization. So, um, yeah, uh, Martin Buber is also a colleague of Bart, and he's a Jewish colleague, and he's someone who appears very often. Um, in the writings of von Balthasar and of Cardinal Ratzinger. And he's, uh, um, you know, often looked at as kind of like a um, a humanist, secular humanist philosopher who has like a kind of Jewish background. And he talks about the I-Thou relationship. He talks about dialogue, about how, you know, a lot of the um, sort of present church theology of dialogue and encounter is coming out of Buber's thinking about the I-thou relationship is that, you know, when we encounter the other, like how God is totally outside of our reality, when we count the other, we, we, um, we experience this, um, um, you know, the God or the spirit of God is kind of brought, brought forth from this uh, dialogue uh, relationship between us and those who are different from us. And that's the way that we, um, I should imagine the, the, the presence of God in the world. And so another important th thinker is Ernst Bloch um, and his book called Atheism and Christianity, a Jewish thinker obviously invested in kind of um, deconstructing from the inside uh, uh, Christian theology. And within this book, this theme called The Subterranean Bi Bible and the Wisdom of the Serpent. So Bloch's thesis is... Um, this idea, you know, coming out of Marcionite um, gnosis, that the, again the God of the Old Testament, um, rather than because he's Jewish and doesn't accept the New Testament, um, that there's a, a separate God from the Book of Genesis to the Book of Exodus, and so the God of Genesis is like the Gnostic demiurge, the God of sovereignty and of of uh, rule and of punishment. And then the God of Exodus is the God of deliverance and redemption uh, and who comes to lead the people out of the bondage of, of Egypt and into the risky desert of, of becoming, into the risky desert of self-constitution. And so the desert becomes this symbol for imminence, for this uh, world that, that, that we inhabit now. So Canaan is the, the hope of um, you know the promised land, the 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 new world, the world at the end of time. But in in the meantime, we're we are given freedom because God, the the true God, the unknown God, who's retracted Himself out of creation, has uh, re returned in this form of the the serpent, the the uh, the one who violates the laws and transgresses the the, the sovereignty of the world and leads us into um, self constitution. So. Um, the, the concept of history here for the Jewish, um, from the Jewish perspective, is history written with a capital H. Um, that is, it's a kind of holy history that's divorced from nature. It's a kind of exodus out of natural law and into self-constitution. So within modernity, we can see, um, you know, nominalism, 
um, as being this uh, system in which we constitute reality. We're not dependent on eternal forms and platonic um, archetypes and things that are established from on high in advance, but it's something that we create for ourselves within the eminence. So, um, yeah, I want to um, maybe read a little snippet from um, from Block here for a second. Uh, the best thing about religion is that it makes for heretics. Religion is religio, binding back. It binds its adherence back, first and foremost, to a mythical god of the beginning, a creator god. So rightly understood, adherence to the Exodus figure called I will be what I will be and to the Christianity of the Son of Man and of the eschaton is no longer a religion. Only an atheist can be a good Christian. Only a Christian can be a good atheist. What is decisive to transcend without transcendence? So what we have within the Jewish thinkers of the Weimar era are kind of two different strains of thought about Gnosticism and the Lurianic myth. You, which would, can be described as a kind of Gnostic nihilism, a world-negating impulse that sees reality as a botched job that mu must be negated and stopped in its tracks, and um, another idea of, of, um, of a kind of pantheistic immanentism, in which because God is retracted from the world, he's given us over to our own self-constitution, and it, we now have the messianic mandate to create the, the world in the image of, of God, and redemption happens in the eminence through history. So um, there's this attempt to uh, define that world negating and associate that with um, a kind of uh, Christian uh, gnosis and to point to Karl Barth and Adolf von Harnack and point to them even as anti-Semites and say, well, since they're saying that the God of the Old Testament is actually the evil Gnostic Demiurge controller God, then they're saying that the, the Jews are, um, you know, their their religion is a false religion. And so it's actually anti-Semitic, even though you can see that, you know, Harnack and Bart are, you know, uh, uh, Bart was very much involved in the signing of the Barman um, uh, Declaration. And, uh, you know, he's very much um, anti-Nazi. And um, anyway... Uh, I wanted to read uh, from Hans Jonas, who kind of is on the side of of um, of the uh, pantheistic immanentism um, that the world is its own um, has its own mandate to itself to self constitution. So um, he has this, and he he wrote a book that's very influential called the Gnostic Religion for. Um, uh, Eric Vogelin, uh, his Gnostic thesis that uh, Doug and I, you know, work with quite a bit on our channel and also in uh, the In Pursuit of the Metaverse book. Um, and he has this myth uh, in this essay, which I recommend called uh, The Concept of God After Auschwitz. Obviously not written during the Weimar era, um, but I think the, this myth actually was, but that essay in of itself is, is very interesting. So this is kind of opening paragraph of his creation myth. In the beginning, for unknowable reasons, the ground of being or the divine chose to give itself over to the chance and risk and endless variety of becoming. And wholly so, entering into the adventure of space and time, the deity held back nothing of itself. No uncommitted or unimpaired part remained to direct, correct, and ultimately guarantee the devious working out of its destiny and creation. On this unconditional eminence, the modern temper insists. It is the courage or despair 
In any case, it's bitter honesty to take our being in the world seriously, to view the world as left to itself, its laws as brooking no interference, and the rigor of our belonging to it as not softened by extra mundane providence. This, the same our myth postulates for God's being in the world, not, however, in the sense of pantheist, pantheistic imminence. Um, if world and God are simply the same, the world at each moment and in each state represents its fullness, and God can neither lose nor gain. Rather, in order that the, God, the world might be and be for itself, God renounced his being, divesting himself of his deity to receive it back from the odyssey of time, weighted with the chance harvest of unforeseeable temporal experience, transfigured or possibly even disfigured by it, and such a self-forfeiture of divine integrity for the sake of unprejudiced becoming, no other foreknowledge can be omitted than that of possibilities with which cosmic being offers in its own terms. To these, God committed his cause in effacing himself for the world. So uh, um, God needs the world just the same way the world needs God. God sees himself in the world. In the world coming to know itself, God see, comes to know himself. And that's very Hegelian, that like re religion is um, is uh, God's self-conscience. It's how God comes to know himself through the working out of religion. But um, yeah, Hans Jonas is uh, someone who's similar, I think, to Urs von Balthasar, in which he's trying to um, look at uh, uh, Gnosticism and uh, cancel it out, meanwhile reviving it in this kind of dialectical fashion. And it's a, a strategy which um, Hegel calls tarrying with the negative. And I think this is an important lens to understand the Kabbalistic ontology of, of dialectical, um, you know, of, of dialectical conflict, where you look to the opposite of the dialectical equation, and, and in your negative relationship to it, you try to recapture it into yourself. And so Hegel calls this tarrying with the negative, or being healed by the sword that smote you. And when you read someone like uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, Cardinal Ratzinger you see that like every sentence is the negation of the previous sentence. And he's like working from both sides of the equation back and forth, back and forth um, as a way of sort of, um, uh, um, and, and this is within the, the, the dialectical um, theory, it's called sublation and it's an alchemical term, which means, uh, you know, it's a contradiction where it's, uh, it means to lift up, to cancel out and to overcome and sublate means this kind of like lifting up through negativity. Um, so another thinker um, uh, from the time period is uh, Jakob Taubas, who I think is a um, very devious thinker, uh, very much working within the Sabbatean Frankist idiom. Um, his book, Occidental Eschatology, uh, is something that um, I think people who are interested in this should, should, should start with. Um, in which he talks about this dialectic as an alternative to analogy. He's very explicit about that. It's a separate ontology. It's a way of escaping the analogy entis. So negation, of course, is the constitutive element of the dialectic. Spirit does not keep itself from death or destruction, but tarries with the negative, healed by the sword that smote it, the magical power which turns it into a living being. Self-consciousness is a state of becoming both being and non-being. So, um, yeah, I, I spoke a little bit last time about this idea of um, the coincidence of opposites and the coincidentia oppositorum. And this is very foundational within 
um, the Zohar, and even much, much earlier um, Jewish mystical writings. Um, a second century rabbi named Reish Lakish spoke very clearly about this um, coincidence of opposite that takes place within the uh, transcendent ground of non-being within the Ein Sof, and how that's the model for overcoming reality is through kind of bashing together opposites until they no longer um, have this firm contradiction. It's a type of ontological sublation, overcoming distinctions through um, through crisis and through conflict. And that model that I spoke about last time, the orbital, you know, the, um, the kind of... Uh, uh, you know, the orbit or the ellipse in which two opposite, um, uh, uh, two opposite subjects are kind of combined in the same, um, pattern is, is a way as the model that they use for, um, for, and this, this, anyway, this makes sense. Uh, if you think about like the shift that took place in the middle ages between the Ptolemaic worldview and the Copernican worldview, where before you had the idea of, there's a heaven above, there's earth below, and the earth is the center of the creation of the cosmos. And then whenever that shifted toward the Copernican model, now there's no longer heaven above. Um, now there's there's only everything in this kind of continuum. And so what's left is just future. You know, heaven becomes future, where you there's no longer up or down. There's no longer anything outside other than this vacuum of space. So what is becomes a source of transcendence is future and the way that we get to future is through these kind of um, orbital gravitational patterns in which two things uh, which are in contradiction through a kind of um, um, you know um, uh, positive and negative charge through a kind of electrical energy that's caused through friction and tension that's how um, the world uh, moves forward and that's how we try to get toward transcendence rather than through uh, waiting patiently for um, for a, a God who's transcendent and outside. And remind me, when we get to, to talking about Messianic time and this uh, thesis of um, the passion of the church, I want to revisit this um, you know, Jewish theodicy of the Yeser Hurrah and how good and evil are kind of these two... Um, opposite hemispheres within, um, you know, good and evil need rely on one another. Mm. Um, so the coincidentia oppositorum um, is a concept that's very central to the Kabbalistic ontology. Um, so the Kabbalists denote that, that Einsolf, the infinite God, is a unity of opposites, one that reconciles within itself even those aspects of the cosmos that are opposed or contradict one another. The Sefer Yetzirah, an early 3rd to 6th century work, which was of singular significance for the later development of Jewish mysticism, had said of the Sephirot, um, the 10 archetypal values through which divinity is said to constitute the world, their end is embedded in their beginning and their beginning and their end. According to Yetzirah, the Sephirot are composed of five pairs of opposites, a depth of beginning, a depth of end, a depth of good, a depth of evil, a depth of above, a depth of below, a depth of east, a depth of west, a depth of north, a depth of south. Ansoff is obviously undifferentiated in a complete and changeless unity. He is the essence of all that is concealed and revealed. According to Azrael, Ansoff unifies within itself being and nothingness, for the being is the not after the manner of the not, and the not is the being after the manner of the being. The not is the being, and the being is the not. Ansolf is also the principle in which everything hidden and visible meet, and as such, it is the common root of both faith and unbelief. 
the very essence of the Sephirot involves the union of opposites, and this union unity provides the energy for the cosmos through dialectical tension and struggle. Um, the nature of the Sephirot is the synthesis of everything and its opposite. For if they did not possess the power of synthesis, there would be no energy in anything. For that, and this is not the synthesis in which they become the same. It's that they enter into this type of um, network or this type of uh, uh, of uh, orbital pattern. For that which is light is not dark, and that which is darkness is not light. So rather than we say, you know, the light exists because it radiates through from God's being, we say light needs darkness, and darkness needs light, and they cannot exist without their other. They can't exist without. Um, uh, not, you know, lightness can't exist without dark and darkness can't exist without light rather than, uh, you know, darkness is merely the privations. It's the absence of being. Um, the truth of, of the opposite perspectives is necessary in order for both God and the world to actualize their unified essence. The very meaning of the cosmos involved a dialectical movement from non-being to being and back to nothingness. And so the capitalist of uh, or many of them arrive at a similar at similar conclusions about the problems of not being. They too professed literal adherence to creatio ex nihilo, uh, even as they reversed its intent. Most of the early Kabbalists taught that creation from nothing inhered in the emanation of Hatma, divine wisdom, and the second of the Sephirot, from the first of all the divine emanations, Keter or crown or corona. This first emanation, however, also went by the name of Ayin Gamar, the primordial nothingness. And so creation from nothing also meant the emanation of divine wisdom, the te template for all the creation to follow from the nothingness of God. So wisdom comes from nothingness. Wisdom is the realization that being and non-being are unified in the nothingness. I mean, it's that it's that simple and it's that opaque at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hence the mystery of iniquity, um, the satanic inversion. So, I mean, in outlining all of those subterranean currents, and I think making those connections of their influence, what you've said there about the Hegelianism, for example, of Ratzinger, uh, I think is very accurate. Maintaining two contradictory subjects, most classically in Samorum Pontificum, with this kind of bizarre notion that a, the Roman rite, a single liturgy, can have two different forms at the same time, two expressions, which you know has been subsequently exploded by by uh, Francis. But it's it's dangerous, and uh, I think this, for example, another example would be that the concept of simsum. It sheds light on the catastrophic collapse of the church since Vatican II, and the kind of posture of managed decline that has been adopted by the popes and nearly all of the bishops since then. The Balthazarian idea of raising the bastions, this idea of the kenosis, the abasement of the church. There's a great video by um, Tradition in Action, Attila Guimeres on this. This giving up on Christendom as official policy, official theology, even if whether that's explicitly an error promulgated in Nostra Aetate or not, but the, but the actual interpretation and application was heretical. In short, this de-Augustinianization parallels the concept of God vacating a space for creation, according to Kabbalah. And suddenly, something like then Father Ratzinger's famous or infamous 1969 radio broadcast can be seen 
perhaps in a different light, uh, where he said, quote, from the crisis of today, the church of tomorrow will emerge, a church that has lost much. She will become small and will have to start afresh, more or less from the beginning. She will no longer be able to inhabit many of the edifices she built in prosperity. As the number of her adherents diminishes, so it will be lose many of her social privileges. In contrast to an earlier age, it will be seen much more as a voluntary society entered only by free decision. As a small society, it will make much more bigger, make much bigger demands on the initiative of her individual members. End quote. So it, there's a there's a kind of reading there that it's like the church entering into the risky desert of becoming. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you can really see this like the way that, you know, obviously uh, von Balthasar was a, a teacher and um, of of Cardinal Ratzinger and. Um, you know, this relationship between Balthazar and Martin Buber of uh, dialogue, encounter, like I, I mentioned before, um, and then Balthazar's relationship to the analogy of being, which the more you look at it, the more you realize, okay, he's trying to work this out dialectically with, with Karl Barth's idea. Um, and then also um, Balthazar's book, Raising the Bastions, um, which, uh, you know, I think this really flies in the face of what we're going to get to talking about this um, you know, necessary passion of the church um, concept as this thesis for what's what's taking place today. Um, that uh, you know that Benedict is like this kind of restrainer who you know um, decided to hand over the keys and allow the church to enter into this kind of decline in order so that the the true church can emerge from the anti-church. Which um, uh, it, it seems to be. You know, how can a restrainer be calling for the raising of the bastions for the church to lower its uh, its uh, barricades and allow for itself to become integrated into the world? Um, you know, as as Balthazar's book says, and as Benedict, I think there's a really good um, tradition and article about how uh, Ratzinger had quoted from from that book. Um, and I found this in a really another book uh, that was recommended. I think you can download a PDF off of tradition and action uh, called Americanism and the anti-Christian conspiracy. Uh, it was written in 1898 around the, you know, the time of that um, Civilita Catholica article articles that we've uh, talked about before by the Abbot Henry de Lassus. Um, and it was approved by the Archbishop of Cambrai. Um, and it's it's a quote from uh, the head of Grand Orient Freemasonry, um, who is a, a was a, a Jew named Cremeau, and he's talking about this this the Universal Israelite Alliance. Um, and he says the Universal Israelite Alliance does not stop with our cult alone; it addresses itself to all the cults. It wants to infiltrate all religions as it infiltrates all countries. That enlightened men without distinction of worship in order to unite them in this universal Israelite alliance, whose purpose is so noble and so broadly civilizing. Its goal is to is the recognition that all religions based on morals intending toward God are sisters and must be friends among themselves. Its goal is to raise the, the barriers that separate what must come together someday. Um, and it just seemed like a very, um, you know, uh, uh, interesting connection and in, in, in phraseology there maybe maybe just a coincidence but um when you look at this is uh what, what you were describing that, uh with Samorum pontificum excuse my scribble this uh this document called grace and vocation without remorse comments on the treatise de Udes by uh, benedict the 16th i think this is from 2018 in which he's uh speaking on nostra Tate, 
um, and the legacy of Auschwitz within Christology and the idea of the um, supersessionist, uh, as he calls it here, the substitution theory uh, of the covenant, that the church is the one covenantal people, in which he proceeds in this dialectical fashion between saying, well, you know, we know from church tradition that it perceives itself in, in such and such way, but how can we still believe this after uh, what happened in Auschwitz and, you know, accepting responsibility because of this this doctrine of the church that somehow um, it's the church's responsibility that, um, uh, you know, that that uh, there was persecution of the Jews during World War II by a pagan regime. And um, not to, you know, not to place any blame on uh, Jewish bankers who um, allow for loans to, to, to be received by the regime. But um, anyway, he basically, he says and unsays simultaneously that there is no substitution theory, that the church exists in a kind of dynamic uh, relation with the old covenant to the new. So, and he quotes from um, John Paul II, referring to the Jewish covenant as uh, the never revoked covenant. So it's a document claiming uh, that it's uh, still in continuity, in the hermeneutic of con continuity between the, the doctrine of supersessionism, yet at the same time it's saying the opposite. Um, and, and like I said, every sentence is the negation of the previous. So understanding this kind of coincidentally oppositorum as this ontological attack on the church, I think it frames well this idea that the um, that there's a church and an anti-church contained in the same body. And I think there's a direct genealogy where we can trace that concept back to the Weimar thinkers and back to the Sabbatean, Frankist, Murano, Jewish messianic, um, Kabbalistic project to undermine the church. And now it's appearing within traditional Catholic discourse. Mm. Yeah, I want to come on to those signs of the engineered messianic time, this engineered apocalypticism that you've identified. Just to respond there on the supersessionist, the supersessionism and these these seeming errors of John Paul II Benedict, which are just as grave, it would seem, as Francis, Francis's, but go rather uncommented on, particularly within the neo-traditional trad-servative space. So Dr. Romig writes, In Europe, all indications are that Caiaphas, not the Galilean, has finally won. A few days after the end of Pope Benedict XVI's 2007 visit to Austria, the director of the Centre for Jewish Studies at the University of Graz, Klaus Hudel, pointed out that, quote, modern Europe can be called more Jewish than Christian. Judaism, not Christianity, is the centre of Western civilization." end quote. The process of Judaization has also reached the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, with full force and has shaken her credibility. In the face of the Holocaust, she feels urged to distance herself from the adversus Judeos theology and also from its great saints, such as Ambrose, Chrysostom, Augustine and Hilarius, as well as from many popes, even those who have been beatified or canonized, together with their encyclicals, even clear passages in the Gospels and the Epistles on the deicide and the judgment of the Jews who do not believe in Christ and who have, quote, the devil as their father, John 8, 44, are now deconstructed and relativized with the help of the historical critical method. While the church once assessed human rights such as religious liberty, freedom of speech, academic freedom and freedom of the press as madness, one might recall the, the syllabus errorum of Pius IX, or the anti-modernist encyclical of St. Pius X, Pascendi Dominici Gregis, they now belong to the same, to the indispensable elements of the dignity of the human person which is no longer tied to any contribution to society. 
The claim that the church is partially guilty for the Holocaust is no longer refuted, but is instead met by admissions of guilt. The church, the Bible, the evangelists and apostles all seem today to be, quote, anti-Semitic. For nearly 2000 years, they are supposed to have created the spiritual and emotional preconditions for the Holocaust. So, as Bishop Williamson said, it's an unspeakable tragedy what has happened here. And sadly, among those who should be aware of the gravity and the dimensions of this tragedy, there are strains of confusion into the discourse. And I think this is, again, one of the signs of the, the times that we should abide. There are, I think, let's say, limited hangout eschatologies being propagated at the moment within the traditional world, particularly popular eschatologies, with a conspicuous omission of the Jewish dimension. This summer, Donald Trump was given a so-called Torah crown by the Israel Heritage Foundation, whose official mission statement on their website says that they are there to, quote, await King David's descendant, our Mashiach, to rule over the land and bring peace unto all nations, end quote. And of course, there's nothing from neo-traditionalist commentators. So what, what's happening here? Monsignor George Dillon was, was an Irish theologian and writer in the 19th century. And basically his book is a compilation of speeches that he gave in response to Pope Leo XIII's famous encyclical letter, Humanum Genum, on Freemasonry. And at the request of many who had heard the lecture and others who had read the reports that appeared in the papers, Monsignor Dillon decided to publish it, along with another lecture delivered to the same audience. After being read a summary of his work, Pope Leo XIII himself approved it and funded the publication of an Italian version called Grand Orient Freemasonry Unmasked as the Secret Power Behind Communism. And in a note on page 20 of the edition, turned to the question of the direction of Freemasonry, which he had mentioned in his preface. He there says, quote, The Jewish connection with modern Freemasonry is an established fact everywhere manifested in its history. The Jewish formulas employed by Freemasonry, the Jewish traditions which run through its ceremonial, point to a Jewish origin or to the work of Jewish contrivers. Who knows but behind the atheism and desire of gain which impels them to urge on Christians to persecute the church and destroy it, there lies a hidden hope to reconstruct their temple, and in the darkest depths of secret society, plotting there lurks a deeper society still, which looks to return to the land of Judah and to the rebuilding of the temple of Jerusalem. End quote. Very univocal on the source and the spirit of Freemasonry. We have all these traditional Catholic commentators today speaking about Freemasonry extensively, but omitting this crucial fact, the enmity behind it of the synagogue against the church, which we know comes from scripture, tradition, the scholastics. Yeah, and a, a really useful way to identify these um, limited hangouts is, um, you know, when the issue of Islam comes up, they're unsheathing flaming swords. And yet whenever they are presented with the JQ, they're putting on velvet gloves. And it shows that they are in allegiance. Suddenly with, they become historical critical, critical you know, right. <laughs> uh, exegetes right. with regards to scripture. Right. And um, you, you realize that they're 
at, at what point are you working for the, the neoconservatives and the greater Israel project in building the kingdom of Antichrist? And if we look at scripture, the New Testament and the eschatological texts, they're always pointing to the synagogue. They're not pointing to the lodge. They're not pointing to the mosque. They're pointing to the synagogue. And there's also the warning in Revelation that he who adds to or takes away from this will be blotted out of the book of life. So if we're omitting um, the source of enmity between the church and it, its enemies that's heading, that's leading us toward the end times, then at what point uh, is, it a, is it a sin of omission? And at what point are we leading others astray? And at what other point are we participating in the destruction of the church and its Augustinian um, uh, uh, place as the restrainer? And I think this, you know, it's it's kind of circling around, this, what is the Katekon? Is the Katekon um, the church? Is it the emperor? Or is it the census fidelium that looks to the church um, as being the kingdom of God on earth that's holding back the mystery of iniquity? It almost seems like this theory of the passion of the church is a, a kind of clever way of inducing the consent of the faithful to accept the church's collapse and to give up on it and to let it enter into this kind of um, this messianic time and the state of emergency. It's uh, coming out of some statements that were made uh, by Peter Seewald, who is a historian of uh, Benedict XVI, and who was also a former Marxist. So he, um, he, uh, he, he knows how to read Giorgio Agamben. And this thesis um, on the passion of the church comes out of this book by Agamben called The Mystery of Evil, which talks about um, uh, you know, Benedict's uh, writings on Tychonius, who was, uh, I think, a fourth century uh, Donatist heretic, um, whose writings on eschatology had some influence on St. Saint Augustine's City of God. Um, and, you know, St. Augustine's thesis that there is the city of God, the city of man, and that there's an overlap and that, um, you know, the, in, insofar as the, the, the city and the church are pointed toward the transcendent and toward God through our, our Lord, then they participate in the city of God. And insofar as they're pointed toward the world, then they participate in the, the city of the devil and, the, and the, the mystery of iniquity. And again, that kind of idea of theodicy is kind of a, uh, um, uh, uh, undercurrent there of like that's what's pointed to where the transcendent participates in being and that's what's pointed away from it participates in non-being it's a privation it doesn't have any ontological reality in and of itself so um this uh tychonius had his thesis was that the church is composed of two it's bipartite it has two parts it's you know has one hemisphere and another hemisphere like uh, uh like the brain uh, and one side is evil and one side is good and this is a direct reflection of the Jewish theodicy called the Yeser Hara. Um, and in shedding the concept of original sin, they came up with this idea called um, Yeser Hara, which is basically that um, man is created with both a good inclination and an evil inc inclination. And again, according to the creation or the um, coincidentiopis in Torum, um, perfect worship, ideal worship is to worship God both with your good inclination and your evil inclination and the evil inclination exists uh so it can be the dialectical foil for the good inclination and that's how history and that's how the world develops and we wouldn't wake up every morning and we wouldn't go to work every day if we didn't have this dialectical tension that we had to deal with um and so that's the way that they resolve this problem of theodicy likewise um uh this book by Giorgio Agamben which is pulling from 
Benedict and also um, Tychonius is saying that it's the, the church's duty in order to root out the anti-church. That's uh, the bitar, bipartite um, uh, side of uh, the, the, the good church is it has to enter into this passion in which uh, the, 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 the true church leaves, it vacates. It, it goes through this kind of kenosis, this zimzum, this withdrawal of itself. And that, that's the actual mystical way of interpreting Pope Benedict's um, self-retraction um, and resignation, that it's a way of um, inaugurating this sort of um, engineered collapse of the church that's actually for the, for the good so that the true church can be appeared and can remove itself from the mystery of iniquity that's been sown in its midst. The pro- you know, one of the major problems here is that that enmity is not something that's from within the church. It's, it, you know, if we look at the, the Bible, it's saying that the enmity is within this, the, the older brother, the seed of the serpent, you den of vipers, the seed of Cain, the mark, you know, it's, it's, it's clear and it's re- repeated over and over again that the enmity is between the non-believing Jews who are, um, still with us until the end of time. And, you know, it's always pointed to, oh, it's a miracle that the Jewish people are still here and they're still with us. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's part of what Christ said was going to happen. So, of course, the Jews will be with us until the end of the time. And we have the eschatological hope that they will be converted in the end of time. But the danger there is that we don't see this crypto-theology, this Muranism, this Sabbatean Frankism. And Giorgio Gumbin, who's promoting this thesis that is being filtered through, you know, traditionalist Catholic discourse and eschatol- popular eschatologies, is an avowed Sabbatean Frankist. I mean, if you read his essays, The Messiah and the Sovereign, he's pulling directly from Gershom Sholem and from Jakob Talbus and these Murano or these Weimar thinkers who are talking about this Gnostic uh, creatio reversio, the, the destruction of reality, the removal of of the restrainer so that we can get to this world without sovereignty. And so they see the remnant of the metaphysical, you know, this is his sort of state of exception thesis is that, you know, uh, we live, you know, part of the, um, the, the catastrophe of the world is that we have to deal with the metaphysical constant of sovereignty. That's why democracy doesn't work because you're always going to have some oligarchical hidden sovereign that appears in the place of what used to be the king. So there's not going to be, you know, popular sovereignty because there's always going to be someone behind the scenes pulling the strings. And anytime there's a state of emergency, a sovereign appears to decide the exception. And according to, um, to uh, Carl Schmitt's thesis of, um, of uh, sovereignty, uh, and of a secular, secularization, the 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 um, decision is a miracle. He requires that because it falls outside of the natural law, and, and this is kind of his you know all ideas of the state are secularized theological concepts. And this idea of secularization is that's why the the Jewish thinkers love Carl Schmitt is because they allow the, them to use these theologies as a way of kind of creating this immanentist eschatology as a way of undoing the church's sovereignty and sovereign claims over the temporal sphere. And that's what's taking place. But it's not enough um, for the pope to be taken out of the way and become an agent of the synagogue. It's not enough for the emperor to be, you know, there to be no holy, you know, uh, uh, monarchs anymore. It has to now be that the um, the true believers and those who still see the church as the reservoir of all being and um, the kingdom of God for them to give up on that image too. And it seems like this is a really diabolical uh, way of introducing that concept. Yeah, I think this is where you've been able to 
shed light again on what the book of revelation means by strong delusions with this non-linear warfare model ontological warfare to give an example an, a, a state of crisis at the moment with child trafficking so we have this talking point coming out of the judeo-christian right at the moment with regard to this this film the sound of freedom whatever merits the film might have a work of art to raise consciousness of this great evil which of course exists just look up the dutro affair and the kind of cover-ups that went on nevertheless the kind of messaging the subtext that's delivered and the agenda of the people behind it i think is one that people should be cautious of and i'm concerned how many people are being drawn into the agendas that that are being promoted pretty blatantly for example by jim caviezel who one can't help but look at and think of our lord which is very powerful and there are several clips appeared on fox news and charlie kirk and he's promoted qanon then talked about judeo christianity just a classic red flag we should all know about by now mentioned how critics of q are like people who say that they want to persecute the early christians i'm going to destroy them because the romans told me they were evil now just ask yourself who what group would be interested in misrepresenting christian persecution early christian persecution as being the conspiracy of the romans against christians what what group would want to exonerate themselves from that who is giving him these kind of bizarre points these strange q gibberish they speak ontological warfare getting you confused over the over reality the film itself funded by mexican billionaire carlos slim who himself has all sorts of links to the left side of the deep state the antinomian globo homo marxist left hillary clinton what's going on here yeah um you use the term nonlinear warfare and that's a concept i want to introduce in tandem with this coincidentia oppositorum uh, Kabbalistic ontology that we've been outlining so far. Um, so the, the way to identify it is the effectiveness of information, misinformation, and disinformation is the cornerstone of this influence strategy. It has proven effective and low cost and both politically and economically. Uh, it's a key aspect of Russia's nonlinear warfare and centered around various methods of subversion to demoralize and cast doubt in political and social system. Utilizing the pre-existing divisions in a society creates opportunities for Moscow. This is obviously from an article about the Russians to, st uh, to stoke eternal flames, seizing the strategic advantage and erode a targeted nation's legitimacy and influence. So this idea of erosion through dialectics, through um, working the yes side of the equation and the no side of the equation simultaneously, I think is that's what's play here. And, you know, you hear, well, you know, you know, Trump's not a part of the deep state because they're always trying to put him in jail and cancel him and shut him down. Right. That's like that's the but you you got to understand that they're trying to attack this law of non-contradiction. Um, and um, it's. It's it's that attack on the 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 law of the excluded middle that um, allows us to continue to participate and to give energy to the spectacle this sort of battery uh, of uh, that needs negativity and so you're going to have um, 
revelations like, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and child trafficking. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've seen these videos where people have visited uh, Epstein Island and the, uh, the temple there. And, you know, people just, you know, with boats out in the Caribbean and they go up to it and it's just like a cardboard box with like Trump lull decals sticking on the side of it. It's not even like an actual architectural temple. And so then it, well, that revelation, what do you do with that? Is it, um, you know, where, where is the side, where, you know, where do you get to the bottom of the psyop? Um, and I think that's part of the game here is to, to elicit us into this process of like digging, uh, going down rabbit holes and trying to get to the bottom of, of questions that are meant to just kind of keep us in the in participation with the spectacle and seeing that there there's some still some skin in the game and they're like oh you know another one you hear right now is that you know election cycles coming up because they're rolling COVID back out uh, you know I want people to understand that they just pushed a button there it wasn't they didn't need COVID to rig the election you know they they have the voting machines they just pushed a button and they can push a button at any time so you know it's like a spectacle on top of a spectacle to just, it's, it's more about that. I think that, you know, as um, uh, your, your, one of your previous guests, Jonah Veneva talked about this problem of consent, the census fidelium, people's belief. Um, this is one of this Gnostic ideas that I encountered uh, in this research of a, a group called the Carpocratians who believe that once there was a critical mass of disbelief, um, who no longer believed in this false spectacle of being in the creation, then it would cease to exist. And they would transcend to the to the new age or whatever. So um, there's this idea of like kind of getting us to participate but not believe at the same time as a way of entering into like a new ontological reality in which we no longer need any sort of a relationship to like truth or transcendence any, anymore. But um, yeah, I mean, it is very discouraging, and that, that's part of the Jewish messianic project again is to collapse ontological. Um, ideas back into the pleroma of non-being of the Einsolf. Um, so we've got our image of Jesus up here telling us that Moses or that Trump is the new Messiah and that he's, um, you know, hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein one day and the next day he's taking down the deep state. And, um, and then also the net, um, the net effect here is that like, we've got teenagers and church going people who are sitting around thinking about like um, the, sexual exploitation of children and all these other QAnon. And that's, that's where their mind, that's where your mind is at. And it's a very dark way of perceiving the world, and whether or not there is a truth there. It's like, why, why, why is it in a movie theater? And then we'll have a story. Well, then if, if it's, if it's a, you know, if the a deep state's behind it, then why are they sabotaging the movie theaters? And why, the, why is the air conditioning being turned off and why are they messing with the lights? And it's like, it's in the movie theater, you know, it had to have, you know, investments and um and distribution and had to get permission from anyway the, uh i don't know how all that stuff works obviously but it does seem very fishy to me and it does seem like it's a way of of again just like what we talked about prior with uh, these these new eschatologies is concealing that principle principle and enmity um who is actually um trying to destroy our nation, who actually has dual citizenship, who actually is able to play both sides simultaneously, who's, you know, uh, Trump's daughter is married to a Chabad, Nick, and uh, Biden's, all of his children are married to, um, anyway, you know what I'm saying. Um, I'll hand it back over to you. I'm just kind of... Uh, yeah, well, as, as any anthropologist would say, marriage customs are very revealing about any given culture. 
And we're even getting to the stage where there's now controlled revelation of the JQ itself, but distorted and taken in a kind of white nationalist direction. Anything that's outside the Christian theophany and the one true faith can always be manipulated by the synagogue. And that's what's happening. And it's it's this cabalistic elliptical battery that you have identified where the revelation deepens the concealment and the concealment intensifies the pangs of the revelation. Mm-hmm. It's paradoxical. Obviously, one of the biggest batteries, dialectical batteries, is the uh, political spectrum, the left-right political spectrum. And recently we had the the spectacle of Dr. Marshall launching his own Christ the King party and his campaign for presidency, which actually had some encouraging elements. The The platform clearly refuted liberalism in the strict sense. Then it was aborted and he's harvested all those emails and contacts, okay, as Lou Verecchio pointed out, and he's now getting back on the Trump train in time for the next cycle. And I just, I, I remember Dr. E. Michael Jones saying that all Catholic bishops in the US have a choice. Either they become a Republican bishop or they become a Democrat bishop, but it's one or the other. And that's the genius of this system that everything eventually gets sucked back into one of the two sides and thus recuperated back into the empire. This this pendulum from Democrat to Republican, Republican to Democrat. It's a hypnotist pendulum. Uh, that such is the effectiveness of the political party system, which, of course, the US Constitution says absolutely nothing about. But I think if if we recall what Dr. Jesse Russell said on this program, that modern media is psychological warfare, that that is its its very identity. There will always be some angle of psychological warfare going on. Uh, just recently, this you know emerged that there was this so-called Jewish wizard behind Andrew Tate, behind Cobra Tate, this kind of new dissident figure that they unleashed on particularly young, young, impressionable men. So it's, it's not nearly in a warfare model. You've described it really eloquently. It's, it's designed to compromise the ontological stability of consciousness so that people don't know where to locate reality any longer. Right. And um, to undermine all sources of sovereignty like simultaneously we have and this is something that um doug dr haugen points out all the time is this um kind of uh um just public humiliation of um, icons of, of of sovereignty and leadership within the western world like all of our political leaders are 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 buffoons i mean they're 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 uh caricatures of of just ineptitude and that's on purpose so that we stop believing this so we participate in this carpocration transcendence in which through um you know we we're participating in it but we no longer believe in it and so we agree we kind of consent to this idea that reality is a fabrication and that there's nothing real there other than just the um the spectacle itself and the spectacle becomes the replacement for ontological reality um and it uh, it reminds me of uh, this quote I read from Carl Schmidt, who I um, I wish I'd had had a hold of this when I did my first presentation with you, um, in which he says, um, according to such Jewish Kabbalistic interpretations, the Leviathan represents the cattle upon a thousand hills, namely the heathens. World history appears as a battle amongst heathens. The Leviathan symbolizing sea powers, fighting the behemoth, representing land powers. The la- latter tries to tear the Leviathan apart with his horns, 
while the Leviathan covers Pema's mouth and nostrils with his fins and kills him in that way. This is incidentally a fine depiction of the mastery of a country by a blockade. But the Jews stand by and watch how the people of the world kill one another. This is ritual slaughter and massacre for them, uh, lawful and kosher, and they therefore eat the flesh of the slaughtered peoples and are sustained by it. And this is the image that they have um, as the kind of dawning of the messianic age in which they're they're uh, feasting on the the holy serpent, the flesh of the holy serpent. Um, and, a, and also it's a, a, a good little um, you know, allegory for how you take these, you know, ontological distinctions and wedge them against each other and stand back and wait for them to auto-destruct and then, um, you know, uh, reap the reap the rewards of their destruction. Um, and anyway, <laughs> you know, kind of a humorous side note, I saw this video um, recently of, of Roseanne Barr, which is, you know, growing up in um, sort of rural South, uh, my parents were very scandalized by the the Roseanne show when it first came out in the early nineties. And I remember them being, um, uh, you know, thinking this is not the way that they wanted their culture represented, uh, you know, as this kind of um, working class, white degenerate kind of, um, you know, upside down family. And uh, then I think it was in 1990, Roseanne Barr did a, um, uh, a national anthem, sang the national anthem, which she basically mocked the whole thing and sang it as poorly as she possibly could, and like spit on the ground and uh, was as um, you know no, un- undeferential as she could possibly be. And then fast forward to now, um, I think in the last month she's come out in which she's questioned the the reality of the Holocaust and also announced that she's um, actually a, a Jewish Kabbalist and uh, she's running for uh, president of the United States and also prime minister of, of Israel, since she's a dual citizen, and um, that uh, she's going to bring world peace by setting up um, Jerusalem as the headquarters for world government, and um, <laughs> and on and on and on. So anyway, um, you know, looking back at like, uh, you know, if someone came out and said, you know, if I'd, I'd been wise to this, and, you know, as a kid, like that, Roseanne Barr is actually this sort of Murano who's coming into your culture in order to create degeneracy. And that's what I kind of what I want to say to um, the people who are buying into um, the, uh, the the sound of freedom, child trafficking. I'm not going to call it a hoax because I do think there is some rea- reality there. But into the spectacle of that is that it's, it's eliciting a kind of social degeneracy. And it's a, a type of mind mind virus, a brain worm that you can't stop thinking about. And it's like you go around all day with this sort of dark lens in which you're seeing every hotel and van that drives by as a possible child trafficking thing. And it's uh, it, 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 it overwhelms your outlook is what I'm trying to say. And then you have to say, well, what interest would uh, the people feeding me this narrative have and trying to, to, to um, insinuate that outlook? Yes, as you elucidate yourself and Dr. Haugen in your forthcoming work in pursuit of the metaverse, this ontological warfare, getting people to give up on reality. Is there a virus? Is there not a virus? Is Trump at war with the deep state? Is he not? The profusion of these holy fools, Kanye up there saying that he he loves the Jews, he loves Hitler, he's a Nazi. It's a derangement that is designed to get people to lose faith in God as the sovereign of history. And I, I think, as you laid out, the Kabbalistic 
eschatology is that once there is a critical mass that no longer believe reality, there will be a paradigm shift towards their messianic utopia. Yeah, and I wanted to uh, point to um, a book I found online, uh, James Larson, War Against Being. Um, uh, it's framed mostly as a critique of the, the theology of, of Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, um, with the minor error that Mr. Larson uh, has some, I think, unfounded critiques of the SSPX. But otherwise, I think the book is very, very good. Um, and I'd like to just read a little quote from this. Um, I believe that there is a profoundly disturbing reason for all this apparent confusion. Thus far, I have dealt with the reality and concept of being and the war that is being conducted against it. And to mystic ontology, the flaming swords which guard the gate of being, and therefore to all reality, are the principle of contradiction and the principle of the excluded middle. These are the logical principles inscribed in our hearts and minds by God, which are the foundations of all of our perception of reality. These principles simply say that a thing either is or is not, that a thing cannot be, and both be and not be, and that we do not have a third alternative, something, as it were, in the middle between being and non-being. To dismiss, e dismiss either of these two metaphorical angels guarding the door of being is to swing open wide the doors of hell and to surrender ourselves to intellectual insanity with moral and emotional insanity a short distance down the road. That's very articulate. And I think it accords with with some of the, the ontological warfare we're seeing at this time. So your book, Dr. Halgan's book, dealing with the, the simulacrum, this empire of spectacle, the purposeful confusion between the sign and that which is signified, between the symbol and the reality, from where comes the ontological pessimism which they're trying to sow. So I think going forward, we need to as Catholics, cease to look for political solutions within liberalism. This is about being faithful to the teaching of the church. Liberalism in a strict sense, that is indifference towards divine revelation, public indifference towards divine revelation. And so any attempt to fold, any even branded as post-liberal but still liberal attempt to for political action, political discourse that remains within that religious indifferentism. There was a very good article by Miguel Casada, which I sent you recently, and I, I'd like to at least end my thoughts with his quote, where he said, quote, in contrast to Hegel, modernity was carved with the chisel of Gnosis. The sword that will destroy it cannot be the same one that gave it life. Yes, there, that um, tearing with the negative uh, within Hegel that we... Um, and that's that's another concept I didn't get to, but um, one of the, the Jewish theses is that modernity represents the second overcoming of Gnosticism through the eminence, where the first was Augustine's through the transcendence. And so, um, you know, uh, where we've eliminated through Copernican worldview the idea of a heaven above, now there is only future ahead and this sort of uh, spirit within history working itself dialectically toward some type of um, eschaton, which is also simultaneously a catastrophe and um, through, you know, revelation and concealment and the unity and struggle of opposites. Um, I think that's a good lens in which we see the, the modern spirit at work and how it is a um, prime example of the Jewish messianic crypto theology. Mm. 
Mr. Tucker, as always, and I look forward to continuing our conversation in the near future. Viva Cristo Rey. Ave Maria.